Welcome to the Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Lyle Southwell. So as we begin this morning, I have a, uh, a very short quiz for you, a one-question a one quiz. What modern country once ruled over the largest land empire that has ever existed? Sorry? Okay, we've got a few different uh, answers coming through. So we've got China, USSR, somebody said Rome, somebody says Mongolia. Jet, what, what's your guess? Sorry, Rome, you're going with Rome? Yeah. Uh, Babylon, we've got Babylon coming through. I guess we've got a few different ideas, and so uh, this was a question that interested me, so I, I decided to put together a, uh, a, a, a little bit of a map to just to sort of compare. And, okay, so there's our, there's our Babylonian Empire, so that's a rather large chunk of land when you look at it. But if you continue on from the Babylonian Empire, of course, if we go through Daniel 2, that was followed by the Persian Empire, which was significantly bigger, wasn't it? Um, it's quite interesting when you put it on a map like this to see how much bigger it was. And then who followed the Persian Empire? The Greeks. And there's Alexander the Great's Greek Empire. And who followed the Greek Empire? Imperial Rome. And so there's the Imperial Roman Empire. And, of course, the Imperial Roman Empire was reduced to the Holy Roman Empire. There's your Holy Roman Empire. And then, just looking at some of the other big ones you had, the Islamic Caliphate. That was quite decent in size. Also, the Ottoman Empire. But somebody mentioned Mongolia. There's the Mongolian Empire. That's huge, isn't it? I didn't realize just how big the Mongolian Empire was and just how much land and how many different nations they once controlled. And it's interesting because we're going to talk a little bit about Genghis Khan this morning who conquered uh, what is considered to be the largest land, land empire ever to exist. And the reason that Russia is not included is because Russia is one nation whereas an empire has to rule over different nations and you, different people might argue that one backwards and forwards. But anyway... Okay, so how was it that Genghis Khan was able to conquer such a large empire? Well, Genghis Khan used terrorist tactics, basically. And so any nation or any city or town or otherwise that opposed Genghis Khan, he would annihilate. Men, women, children. He would destroy all the irrigation systems. He would destroy all the farmland. And then he would send his soldiers out to individual towns roundabout and a single Mongolian soldier would ride into a town on his horse, randomly execute a few people in the town. Of course, he's outnumbered by the townsfolk, and then just sit on his horse to see what happens. And, of course, the townsfolk would do nothing because they knew that if they did anything, they would bring the whole of the Mongolian, what was called the Golden Horde, down on top of their heads. And so as he, as he progressed through the world, there were many, many nations that simply decided it was a whole lot easier just to surrender rather than to fight against Genghis Khan. So he practiced wholesale destruction on an unprecedented scale. He burned farmland, destroyed irrigation system, systems, starved entire populations. In some places, he diverted rivers into towns. He just divert the river into the town, flood the whole town. So he's laying siege to it. It's like, yeah, we're just going to drown you guys. And, and, and he would do that. He killed 5% of the world's population. That's a big chunk when you think about it. The, popular, the populations of China and Hungary were reduced by half, so China went from 120 million down to just 60 million. 
He reduced the population of Persia from two and a half million to just 250,000. And the population of Persia took 800 years to recover. He practiced biological warfare. And so his army somehow, somewhere along the line, they picked up the bubonic plague somewhere in southern China. Well, he carried the plague with his army across to Europe and what he would do is he would take the dead bodies from his soldiers and catapult them into the towns so that the plague would spread through the town and once everybody in the town was sick and dying and dead, then he'd just walk in and take the town. So yeah, a rather interesting character. Um, I hope I'm not... Um, He's a bit of a hero in Mongolia, but um, I'm not offending anybody. Even the Mongolians are a little bit shy about just how much they say about Genghis Khan. Okay, so in transporting the Black Plague to Europe, uh, the result of that was that over the next 100 years, it would kill 60% of Europe's population. In France and Spain, 80% of the population died as a result of the plague that Genghis Khan brought and the global population would not recover until the 17th century. He practiced the original sexual warfare, so we have sexual warfare as a major component of uh, the warfare taking place in Africa in the last 20 years or so, which is warfare by rape. And one in seven Asians today carry a gene cluster from Genghis Khan himself. He raped that many people. So that's 1.4 billion people today. Yeah, so interesting character. Another thing that he did that he managed to accomplish was that he scrubbed, they estimate, 700 million tons of carbon from the atmosphere because so much fertile farmland just turned itself back into forest where once human beings lived and farmed and just became wilderness and bush and forest. Okay, so biologically, Genghis Khan was the most successful human being to ever live. And he made a statement in relationship to his moral code, and this was his moral code. The greatest happiness a man can know is to conquer his enemies and drive them before him, to ride their horses and to seize their possessions, to see the faces of those who cared for them bedewed with tears, and to clasp their wives and daughters into his arms. Now, when you stop and think about Genghis Khan, we all feel a little bit uncomfortable about the history of this particular individual, don't we? We all sit here and think, yeah, I'm not so quite sure that I like Genghis Khan's moral code, right? Particularly if we compare it with another moral code. His greatest joy was the destruction, wholesale destruction of vast populations of people. If we can compare it to the moral code of Jesus Christ, we find this, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the death, even the death of the cross. There's a rather large contrast there between those two moral codes, wouldn't you say? And yet when we think about these two moral codes right here, and we see one that appeals to us more than the other, and we find that Almost universally across our world, people are going to be attracted to this moral code in favor of the moral code of Genghis Khan. We would say, why? Because from an evolutionary perspective, Genghis Khan was the most moral man who ever lived. 
Have you ever stopped to think about that? You see, the evolutionary morality, if we consider evolutionary morality, evolutionary morality, which is based around survival. Survival of your species, survival of your genes, you passing on your life to others and continue, you know, continuing on from there. Survival of the fittest, natural selection, weeding out the weaker ones. Evolutionary morality is 100% entirely, totally selfish. It is self-based. Evolutionists talk about the selfish gene or the selfish genes that we have, and it has to be selfish under the evolutionary model to be able to survive. So survival of the species is the goal. Anything that benefits survival of the species creates an advantage and therefore is a good thing. Anything that is not beneficial to the survival of the species should be discarded and is always a good thing when it is discarded or killed off. Uh, so success and immortality is found if you are able to pass on your genes and therefore rape is one of the most successful mechanisms for passing on the strongest genes, because if you can overpower another person, then you are stronger than that person, and that ensures that strong genes are then passed on. And so we find that Genghis Khan was able to overpower lots of people. He was able to rape lots of people, himself personally, and as a result, he was obviously a very strong individual. He was able to pass on strong genes. This is improving the gene pool in our world from an evolutionary perspective. Not only that, but by waging war, you have a whole process of survival of the fittest taking place, natural selection, weeding out weaker human beings. Isn't that so? But he didn't just wage ordinary conventional warfare, he also waged biological warfare. And so only those who had a certain immunity to the Black Plague would survive once again, weeding out the weaker genes and creating a stronger human gene pool. And we could go on and we could talk about a whole bunch of different ways in which Genghis Khan was a benefit to the human race even by scrubbing lots of carbon from the atmosphere. So from an evolutionary perspective, we could look up to this man and say, here is a model citizen of the world, here is somebody who has done incredible good things for the world, and yet very, very few people, except for uh, maybe patriotic Mongolians in our world today, would actually take that view once you study the history of what Genghis Khan accomplished. We, we sit here and we sort of cringe and we squirm. And the question that goes through my mind is this, is why? Why do we squirm? Why is it that you can go and talk to your friend or your neighbor or whoever else it is and you can share some of the history of Genghis Khan and they're just not going to feel entirely comfortable with that, even though they don't believe in God? Why is this so? Why is Mongolia, which is, was a communist nation for many, many times, they got rid of anything to do with uh, religion, why are they still a little bit unsure about how much they really do like Genghis Khan? Because they understand the history of, of what he did. And, you know, obviously we have the, the, the contrast here. So what is the origin then of morality? Where does 
morality come from? Why does morality even exist? I would like to put it to you that morality exists because we are created in the image of God. And I want to demonstrate that this morning, that our mind, our, our brain, as some people have termed it, is a God-shaped brain and it has a God-shaped hole in it that only God can fill, that we were created for the purpose of, of loving God, of loving each other, and of sharing the character of God and being like Jesus Christ, being like God. Various evolutionists have made an attempt to create a biological explanation for morality. So everybody feels uncomfortable about Genghis Khan and what he did. And there was, there's, there's very few people who would say that, you know, mass rape is a good thing. But why? From an evolutionary perspective, why? Now, it's interesting that uh, probably the most prominent one to try and grapple with this from a biological perspective was Sam Harris. And he came up with four ways that morality evolved. Kin selection, reciprocal kindness, reputation, and sexual advertising. Okay, so kin selection works a little bit like this. We want to be kind to our close relatives because they carry copies of our genes. So even if we sacrifice ourselves for them, our genes still live on. It leaves you a little bit cold, doesn't it? You know? But he's like, yeah, this is how it evolved over time, and there's this thing somewhere in our subconscious that we want our genes to continue on so we'd be kind to our relatives because they've got copies of our genes. And so that then evolved into a thing called kindness. Uh, then he said reciprocal kindness. I would care for others who would care for me and my children, and therefore my genes will survive better this way. So therefore, if, if I am kind to somebody else, they'll be kind back to me, and this is how the whole process of morality evolved amongst human beings. Of course, morality is not something that is uh, a big thing in a very large parts of the animal kingdom, but humans are very moral people. Okay, reputation. I'd care if others saw me caring and that got me a great reputation. That would give me then more opportunities to pass on my genes. So I care for other people. I'm kind to other people so that I get a good reputation. That then makes me look like a good person and gives me more opportunities to pass on, on my genes. And so this is one of the areas where you saw, you know, maybe this is how it evolved in the human mind. And then, of course, sexual advertising, a rich, resourceful mate and a fantastic breeding partner raises his chances of reproduction if he is in a position where he can obviously be kind to others. That means that he has everything that he needs already so he can share with others. And somebody who has everything they need already is somebody who is obviously wealthy and well put together. However, I this week, during the week, I bumped into a story about Mark and Kelly Tenharken. And this is Mark Tenharken and his adopted daughter. And I just want to thought we will compare the evolutionary concept of morality and see if it lines up with this story. So here's, here's, a, here's a couple, they're an American couple. He, for, uh, as, as a hobby, he does um, obstacle course racing. He goes on a mission trip. He has three children. He goes on a mission trip and he decides, he and his wife decide to adopt. And so they adopt this little girl here. 
from Africa. She's three months old when they adopt her. She has epilepsy and cerebral palsy. So they adopt this little girl, and he made this statement. She cannot feed herself. She cannot toilet herself. She cannot sit up. She cannot move her head. I know every night when I put her to bed and kiss her on the forehead and tell her I love her, she's never going to say, I love you back. But I know she does, and that's special. Now, my question is this. Why did Mark and Kelly adopt this little girl? What drove them to do so? It was a sense of morality, right? Anybody who looks at this story here, any human being on this planet is going to look at this story and say, yes, that was a very moral thing to do, wouldn't you say? But then how does, how does this kind of morality evolve? So I have a couple of questions in relationship to this. Okay, uh, Mark Ten Harkin here, right here. Is he protecting his genes by adopting this little girl? She doesn't carry his genes. Is he protecting even his own race? No, she's a different race. Is by adopting this little girl in any way aiding his survival and the survival of his genes? No, it's actually doing the opposite because he is burdening himself down and it is very likely he will die younger than what he would have done because of the burden of raising this disabled child. And yet he chooses to do so. Is there a financial benefit? Is he he going to get more? No, he's not going to. There's a financial burden here that he has voluntarily taken on for the rest of his life. He is going to be poorer as a result of the decision that he has made. Is there an emotional benefit? Okay, we might say that, uh, yes, but from a purely evolutionary perspective, this is going to be something that is going to cause him continual grief and pain and sadness and emotional heartache throughout his life while he raises this young girl. And stress. Imagine the burden of stress emotionally that this is going to place on him, to hold him back. Is there a physical benefit? You know, we've got to to look for a, from an evolutionary perspective, you've got to look for a benefit. Why do people do this? You know, why is it that when we hear about situations like this, that, you know, we'll put our hand in our pocket and we will give money, what benefit are we gaining from that, from an evolutionary perspective? Absolutely none whatsoever at all, and yet anybody in our world right now can look at this and say, this is a very moral thing to do. And so this is why I say that we were created, this right here is evidence that we were created in the image of God, that God is a moral being and in creating us in his image, he has created us with an inbuilt morality that does not exist outside of being a gift from God. There is no evolutionary explanation because evolution by nature is entirely selfish. And the kingdom of God, by nature, is the exact opposite. It is entirely unselfish. Do you see what Satan is trying to do when he came up with a theory of evolution? He's trying to create something that is a kingdom that is based around something that is the complete opposite of the kingdom of God. 
You see, in atheism, there is no such thing as a moral absolute. That's impossible. You know, it never ceases to fascinate me how many atheists out there, uh, 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 aggressive atheists there are out there, who will say that God is evil. And then they'll bring up all these examples in the Bible, you know, the Malachite genocide or whatever else it might be, and say there's all of these examples as to why God is evil. How can you as an atheist say that God is evil? Isn't that a contradiction in terms? Because evil does not exist if you are an atheist. There is no such thing. It's only evil because your culture says that it's evil, but it's not evil. So morality is constructed by interactions with other people, and we're a social species and rely on the tribe, they say. We have to develop a pattern of interactions that allow us to exist. Well, there are lots of animals that have no morality whatsoever at all and are very, very successful creatures. The real test of successful morality is that, is that it allows a population to thrive and survive. Morality is cultural. You can never give an absolute reason for the morals you hold. There is no protection um, here. And, and, and this is an interesting one in the... Uh, in the, in the current political climate, there's no protection in atheism from the slippery slope of immorality. So atheism comes along and atheism tells us that, you know, adultery and fornication, that's fine. The, the world doesn't feel comfortable with it, but over time it becomes normalized. And so today we live in a, in a world where those kinds of things are normalized. And so that having been normalized, the next thing that comes along is, okay, that's, that's, that's now normalized, that's fine, we've got no problem with that. So now we've got the whole debate taking place over same-sex marriage. And over time, that is also being normalized. But then my question that comes up is this, what happens next? You see, 50 years ago, 5% of the population, only 5% of the population felt that it should even be legal to be homosexual. That world has changed a lot since then. The question that goes through my mind is, what kind of a slippery slope are we standing on? If morality does not exist, then what about bestiality or pedophilia? How can you say that that is wrong if God does not exist? Because there is no such thing as wrong. If it is not damaging the possibility of you passing on your genes, then how it is wrong? Well, that probably with homosexuality, it does limit the possibility of you passing on your genes, but which is kind of interesting because Lawson was talking about this. It's almost counterintuitive from an evolutionary perspective for our world to go down the direction it's going right now because it's actually damaging the human genome and we are making an unnatural selection to limit the survival of the species. But that's a, probably a, another discussion for another day. The Bible says that we are created in the image of God. Let's, let's look at this in the Bible very quickly. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1. And verse 24, the Bible says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that lives on the earth. 
want you to notice what God says. He says, let us create man in our image. Human beings created in the image of God and then created to have dominion over the rest of creation. In other words, God says the human beings were created different from the rest of creation. Isn't that so? When you look at the rest of creation, morality is something that is, it, it varies. It varies. We're going to come to it in just a moment and look at some examples. So God, the Bible goes on and says, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's talking about when it says man, it's talking about humanity. So the Bible says that we are created in God's image. God blessed them and God said, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the Bible says, first of all, that we are created in the image of God and then the Bible says that we are created different from the animal kingdom. And I would put it to you, that our brain is the greatest evidence that we have that what God says right here is true because our brain was created. This is the part of us where you find the image of God. And Satan has been doing absolutely everything he possibly can to destroy the image of God in human beings and he does it by trying to destroy our brain. Isn't that so? Let's think about the brain for a moment. Actually, before we do, let me point out something in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Because we're talking about how that morality is something that is universal throughout our world today. And yet there is no evolutionary explanation for it. In Romans chapter 2, the Bible brings this out in the clearest possible language. In verse 11, the Bible says, For there is no respect of persons with God. What's God? And this is, okay, so we're dealing with Paul here. So expect it to be a little bit of a tongue twister. We'll work our way through it one step at a time. Essentially, what Paul is saying is that with God, he looks at everybody the same. You're all human beings, you're all in the same thing together. Doesn't matter what race you are, doesn't matter what sex you are, doesn't matter what color you are, what language you speak, where you come from or otherwise, God looks at everybody in the same way. He goes on in verse 2, For as many as have sinned without the law will perish without the law. As many as have sinned with the law will be judged by the law. Very simply, the Bible says, the law says the wages of sin is death. Okay, if you don't have the law, you sin, you die. You do have the law, you sin, you die. God is not respecting persons. It's the same standard for everyone. But then he goes on. He says, For not, obviously, this is on verse 13, For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified or made right. How? Obviously through the grace of God. But then he continues, For when the Gentiles... And I want you to think about this passage right here. Let's think about Paul's day. And let's think about our country right here in Australia. So Paul's day, who was living here in Australia? Lots of Aboriginal people, right? Yeah. Good to have you guys in our congregation today. So your ancestors were living here, but they never heard of Jesus, had they? No, they never heard of Jesus. All right. Okay, so right here in Australia, you've got a bunch of Gentiles, they've never heard of Jesus. For when the Gentiles, 
our indigenous population here in Australia, which don't have, did not have the law, do by nature the things contained in the law. In other words, they live a moral life. Uh-oh. Where did they get that from? Where did they get a sense of morality from? Why was there a moral code amongst our indigenous communities here back then in the time of Paul? Why? From an evolutionary perspective, that would be a disadvantage. Okay, so when the Gentiles, which don't have the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law, are a law unto themselves. Verse 15, which show the work of the law written where? In the hearts, in our mind. You see, the Bible says that God wrote, God created our mind, our brain, as a moral brain. He wrote his law right here, and every single person on on this planet has God's law written in their mind, whether they know the law of God or not. And this is why the Bible is very clear that there will be many people in heaven. And I think many of our indigenous population here in Australia will turn up in heaven. And the Bible talks about it in Zechariah. It talks about they turn up in heaven and they have no idea where they are. Why? Because they've never heard of Jesus Christ. And they're asking Jesus because obviously he's the only one who's imperfect. He has scars in his hands. Who are you? And they hear the gospel story for the very first time in heaven, in a perfect environment, and Jesus is the evangelist that is preaching the story. Don't you want to sit in that meeting? Hear the gospel presented by Jesus Christ himself to people who have never heard before in a perfect environment in heaven? I've got to tell you, friends, I'm looking forward to being a part of that meeting. I want to hear that sermon, and I want to see the response that people who have never heard of Jesus Christ give when Jesus presents them the gospel and tells them how they got there. People who responded because the law of God was written in their minds. Okay, so uh, let's think about our brain for a moment. It's the most complex organism that that is known to exist in the universe is the brain. Those people who study the brain today will be the first to tell you that the number one thing that we know about the brain is that we know less about the brain than anything else. It's made up of over one billion nerve cells and just one cell within our brain can have over 200,000 connections with other cells. In my research, I came up with this whole great process of how it worked and not everything will fit. So if you want to know about it, come and talk to me over lunch. It's just fascinating. Okay. The frontal lobe of our brain is where morality is found. That's where moral decisions are made. I'm simplifying it a little bit. But then let's compare our brain with other brains that are out there. So if we look at uh, a cat and a dog, a dog has twice the frontal lobe of its brain as a cat does. And for those of you who own dogs and cats, you can see this, right? So a dog has a lot more morality. It has pretty much twice as much morality as a cat. We have many, many dog stories where dogs have given their life for their owners. We're we're familiar with this concept, right? 
We also have cats, and you will notice that cats will sometimes torture animals and that they, you know, cats have been known to eat their owners when their owners have died. So there's a very, very different, very, a very clear contrast between the morality of a dog and the morality of a cat. However, the lack of morality in a cat has given a tremendous evolutionary advantage to a cat. Here in Australia, we have between 20 million and 60 million feral cats that kill on average 1.2 native animals per day. So that's a little bit scary for our country. And there's a whole debate going, you know, should we, should we let it happen or should we not let it happen? I don't think it's worth debating because it's just happening. So the cat not being a moral creature has been very, very successful. We have wild dogs in Australia, but not on anything like the same scale. Dogs rely much more on their interaction with human beings to be able to preserve their genes and to be able to preserve their species. But then if we look at a dog, which is so much more moral than a cat, and I'm not talking, I'm not trying to put down the cat lovers here. In any way, shape, or form, you guys go ahead and love your cats. I love my dog, and he loves me, and that's great. But I'm just... This is a great illustration here. So a, cat has tw a dog has twice as much morality, twice as much frontal lobe as a cat, and yet the frontal lobe of a dog's brain is only 7% of its brain. You know how much of your brain is frontal lobe as a human being? 33% of your brain is made up of that part of the brain where moral decisions are made. God created our brain as a moral brain. And you can't explain this from the standpoint of um, evolution. Okay. This is from the, a study done by... I can't remember. Somewhere here in my notes. Okay. So this was a study done on youth who volunteer. Okay. So youth who volunteer. So when you think about volunteering, volunteering does nothing to advantage you evolutionary, from an evolutionary perspective. It does everything to disadvantage you. So volunteering disadvantages you from an evolutionary experience. Notice what, from an evolutionary perspective, notice what happens. Youth who volunteer have greater academic achievement, civic responsibility, and life skills that include leadership and interpersonal self-confidence. So when we do the exact opposite of what evolution tells us to do, what happens? We improve. This is the opposite of what should be happening from an evolutionary perspective. Adults, same research, who volunteer, live longer, have less illness, less disability, less depression, less dementia, and live independently longer than those who did not. So in other words, adults who disadvantage themselves on behalf of others live longer. Why? Because we were not created through a process of natural selection and evolution. We were created by God. And when we fulfill our God-given moral responsibility here on this earth, we blossom. We thrive in a God environment and in a non-God environment. We shrink down. We become selfish and bitter. And we've all seen it, right? People who get rid of God out of their lives. 
the uh, Newberg study. This was an interesting one. Newberg study studied people who were 65 years and older. In other words, people who are, whose, whose brain is starting to die off a little bit. For all those of you who are 65 years and older, sorry. However, I have good news for you. Okay, so they're studying people that are 65 years and older whose brains are starting to reach that, that, that point where they're starting to die off a little bit. And they took these people and they got them to meditate on various things in relationship to God. There was one group that was to meditate 12 minutes a day, just 12 minutes a day, that's all, on a God of love. Now, 12 minutes a day, that's not a whole lot, right? You know, Jesus said, Jesus said, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have eternal life. When Jesus said that, he was referring to, not physically, you know, he goes on and explains it, my body is not going to profit you anything. It's the words that I speak unto you. In other words, you need to eat in my words. Drink in my words and you'll have eternal life. That's what Jesus said. And, and I would say that 12 minutes a day of drinking in the love of God, I'd call that fast food, wouldn't you? It's not a very good diet of the love of God, is it? No, no. So these are people who are living on, on fast food from a spiritual perspective. The bare minimum for survival. 12 minutes a day, that's all. Their heart rate, blood pressure and memory was tested. 30 days later, they could already measure growth in the anterior cingular cortex. That's the part of your brain where you experience empathy, compassion, sympathy, altruism, in other words, morality. 12 minutes a day, for just 30 days, and the brain was growing under the influence of meditating on a God of love. Their heart rate went down, their blood pressure went down, and their memory increased by 30%. So if you're older than 65 and you're starting to go, yeah, my memory's starting to to, to, to fail me, then the best thing that you can do is spend time with God every day thinking about his character of love. That's what science tells us. Jesus said it a long time ago, but that's what science tells us. Every other God concept that was tested failed. I want you to think about that. Do we have a God-shaped brain? Did God create our brain? Does our brain give us evidence of the creative power of God? Does it show that we are in the image of God? The Bible says that perfect love casts out fear. And this is why we need to be meditating on the love of God. Because the love of God will remove fear from our concept of who God is. It will move fear from our, wor- from our, from our worldview, from our experience. And fear is one of the things, one of the most destructive things for the brain. I love it when, uh, when science shows you that what the Bible says is true, don't you? Now, not only is our brain formed in the image of God, not only is our brain created to be a brain that is in communication with God, that thrives 
under communication with God, our brain has a hole in it. So for our children's story, we found that you can make a hole in your hand, right? Remember that, kids? Okay, all the kids, remember we found a hole in your hand? Right, the kids are busy with other... Remember the hole? Okay, we found a hole in your hand, right? Okay, I got their attention now. All right, your brain has a hole in it as well. Did you know that? Let me read it to you from the Bible. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, the Bible says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will eat with him and he will eat with me. I want you to think about this for a moment. When Jesus says that he stands at the door and knocks, what door is he talking about? Where does he want to come into? He wants to come into your brain, doesn't he? So if he's standing there knocking and there's a door and he can come in, that means that there is a hollow space inside of your brain, right? There is a hole in your head. And here's the fascinating thing. The only thing that will fill that space, that hole in your head, is God. It is a God-shaped hole. It's that simple. Let's think about this for a moment. We have this God-shaped void. Because we are created as moral beings, our brain is constantly telling us that this void needs to be filled. It needs to be filled with something. If we rule God out of the picture, then we're never going to find the right thing to fill that hole. And so what's going to happen as a result? Well, it's going to destroy the person, crush the person. I'll give you an example here. Some time ago, 2004 I think it was, I was in the United States and had a few days off and we rented a car and nearby was Pikes Peak. So there was no way, given that I had a rental car, because rental cars are pretty awesome, that I was not going to drive the Pikes Peak Rally. And there's something interesting about driving the Pikes Peak Rally is that um, back when I drove it, it was all gravel road, and it's actually quite terrifying. It's the only place where I've been driving up a very steep slope, you know, where you've got sky out the windscreen, and I've looked out the window and down, and there's sky down there as well. It was really off-putting. So I've driven up, and, and I did not drive as fast as these guys. I mean, there are... There are cliffs that, that, that just go down thousands and thousands of feet and they've got their back wheels hanging out over the edge. And, and uh, I was all enthusiastic until I actually started up it and then I was like, ooh, I'm going to slow down a little bit right now. This is a little bit freaky. And, uh, yeah, then I, I overtook some other people um, heading up in their minivan and I think they were doing all of about 20 kilometres an hour, white-fisted, clenched to the steering wheel, terrified look on their face. So I drive up to the top of Pikes Peak. I had, I had a drink of water with me, as you do, and uh, spent some time on top of Pikes Peak. The visitor center up the top, it was great. You're about um, 15,000 feet up. And, uh, and then I drove back down to the bottom of the mountain. So I descended, you know, the best part of, I don't know how many thousand feet I came down. And when I got down, my water bottle was like that. Why was it crushed? 
air pressure. You see, I wasn't in a pressurized cabin of an airplane. I was in a car. Okay, there you go, air pressure. So it was crushed. So I'm like, oh, that's interesting, because we've driven down off the mountain from 15,000 feet up. And so then when I opened my water bottle, what happened? It sucked in all of the air that it was nearest to it to get rid of the crushing pressure. You know our brain is like this? Because the pressure of the world around us comes in and it crushes our brain. Why does it crush our brain? Because our brain has a hollow space inside of it. And if our brain has a hollow space, it means that God is not inside of our brain and it can crush. And people feel the crushing pressure that comes on their brain, their heart. And so then an opportunity comes for them to open their heart because they feel the pain and they're like, I want to get rid of this pain because it's just crushing me. And they open their heart and what happens? It sucks in whatever is nearest. Like that. And if that is not God, is it filling the space? No. It's not filling the space in their heart at all. Because only God can fill that space that is in, that, in our heart. And so what happens? Nameless, longing questions without answers, answers without questions. Fear, guilt, shame, pain, loneliness, emptiness, hopelessness. All of these are in our heart, in our brain, and they are crushing us. And so to relieve the pressure, we open our heart, it sucks in whatever is nearest. And so... Because it is a God-shaped brain, we would assume that when we open our heart and it draws stuff in and God is not in the picture, we're going to try and replace God with something else. Isn't that so? What is God? What is the character of God? God is love. All right, so we're going to try and replace God's love with human love. And what we see in our world today is people try and replace God's love with human love. They try and replace the love of God with sex. But God is not just love. God is also omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And people are trying to, there is pain in people's lives and they're trying to fill their brain with stuff and they're trying to fill, you know, because this is God. God is powerful. So we need the love of God. We need the power of God. And so people become politicians and they start political maneuverings. And you can find it from, you know, the politics that run our country. People have this thirst for power. They're trying to get rid of the pain that is inside of them because that hole has not been fulfilled with the power of God. And so they're looking for power in all of the wrong places. They look for love in the wrong places. They look for power in the wrong places. You can look at the political leaders of our country. You can look at our own church. Right down to where we are right now, you have people when they start to maneuver for political power, what's going on? trying to fill a space in their heart, in their mind that only God can fill. God is not just omnipotent, God is omniscient. And so you find people who place all of their value, their whole value of who they are as a person revolves around a number of letters that they have after their name. They become the eternal student. Why? Because there is a God-shaped hole 
an omniscient hole inside of their brain. It is not being fulfilled. And so the only place they can find self-value is by lining up letters after their name. See, we all have this within our heart, within our brain. God is not just omniscient, He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. And because He is everywhere, He gives us security and safety. And you have people that are forever insecure. They're forever trying to find security in their life. You know, like some people that you know, lock every door and all this kind of stuff, trying to find security. Then God, the Bible says that God is immutable, unchanging. You have other people who will look for stability everywhere. These are the kind of people who never want to travel anywhere, never want to go anywhere, never want to experience new things. Why? Because they're looking for stability in their lives because they have a hole in their brain that is not being fulfilled. God is infinite. You have the opposite extreme, the eternal traveler, the person who is always got to be in a different place all the time because they're looking for the infinity of God. And when God comes into our life, God can fulfill all of these things in our life. Now, all of us, we all struggle with these things to a certain extent. Let me share this quote very quickly. There are many who try to reform by correcting this or that bad habit, and they hope in this way to become Christians, but they are beginning in the wrong place. Our first work is by opening our heart to God and allowing God to come in and to fill that space in the brain that he has created and that only God can fill. And that your life will always be unfulfilled while ever God is not there. All the blessings which the world can give fail to satisfy the wants of the soul. There is a nameless longing for something which they have not, a peace and a rest that is not born of this earth. Friends, if we go to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, the Bible says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind. I will write them in their hearts. I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. What does God want to do? He wants to fill our mind with His character, with His law, with His actions, with His grace. How do we, how do we get this into our heart? How do, we, how do we receive it? The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse, four, verse 5, Let this mind be in you that was also in Jesus Christ. Let the mind of Jesus come in. The, the action word here, the verb in that verse is the word let, allow Jesus. The Bible says he stands at the door of your heart and he knocks. He wants to come in. He knows that your brain is a moral brain created by him in his image and that there is a space, there is a place in your brain that only he can fill. He knocks. He wants to come in. He says, let me come in. I will come in. I will write my law of love on your heart so that your natural actions will be the outworking of the law of love. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28. Matthew 11. Jesus says this, he says, come unto me, 
all you that labor and are heavy burdened. And I will give you what? Rest. Does it sound good? Yeah? We all like some rest, don't we? In our world, we are pressured by our world. We are stressed by our world. The devil is on our case. He never likes to give us peace. And what does God say? I want to give you rest. I want to come into your heart. I want to give you my grace. I want you to experience it for yourself. I created you for this purpose. We study it from the standpoint of science. And science reveals that our brain was created for the purpose of being filled with God. Our brain functions in the opposite way to what science says that it should that it should function. And science tells us that we will find our true fulfillment in filling our mind with Jesus Christ. Now we don't need science to tell us that. Why? Because we have the word of God. Jesus speaks to us and he speaks to our hearts right now. How many of you want to open your heart right now and say yes? I want Jesus to fill my heart. I want him to fill that void, that empty space in my life. Is that what you want? Yeah, praise God, friends. God is so good. Father in heaven, we thank you that life is truly worth the living because you live and because you live, Jesus can live in our hearts. We pray that Jesus will live in our minds right now and fill that space that was created for him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Beauty.
God doesn't want you to go through this day alone. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. As you think through the things you need to do today, picture God's hand with you and guiding you. And as he lays his hand upon your head, as David says, what is it that he's speaking to you today? Write out whatever comes to mind and, and carry it with you throughout the day as a tangible reminder to encourage you. And at the end of the day, come back to this piece of paper and see how God was leading you and have a conversation with God in prayer about how the day started and what happened throughout. This will help you develop a deeper prayer life. So listen to God's words for you this morning and remember, live your faith have a blessed day. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.